Well, every pastor and every missionary can tell you the story of how God called them into that calling. Some are wild stories. I have friends who were in prison and became believers while they were incarcerated and came out, and all they wanted to do was preach or to serve on the mission field. Others have a a longing that they've had since they were children to, to go to some faraway land and preach and proclaim the gospel to people who've never heard the good news. But the truth is that any, before any person can be called into ministry, they are first called to God himself. Every single person has a story about how God called them to himself. And in that calling, we receive, and at the same time, we give away. We receive adoption as sons and daughters, forgiveness of sin, and the promise of eternal life. But we give up the life that we once knew. We give up our desires and our safety. We are born again, and at the same time, we're putting to death the old person. See, modern Christianity in the West would have you believe that conversion to the Christian faith is no different than buying a car or choosing where to go to college. Yeah, put some thought into it. Uh, examine the options, think about it, and then make the best decision for you. That's that's what the world would say that Christianity is. It's no different than the other religions. The thought of self-sacrifice and self-denial often doesn't come to people's minds. But the truth is that the Christian faith demands everything from you. It's not something that you can add on to your life as, as, as a help to make your life just a little bit better. It is a complete denial of who you are in favor of what Christ has done for you. I hope you see the difference there. And this is, whether you realize it or not, this is what this passage before us talks about. Yes, Abram was called for a specific purpose, but he was also called first to be a child of God, just like you and just like me. Now, there are some passages in Scripture that make me uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. As I read or as I preach, there are some that are just a little more uncomfortable than others. This one is uncomfortable for me. And you read it and you think, well, wait, wait, wait. God has given Abram a calling, a a purpose for his life. How in the world does that make you uncomfortable? See, we could study this passage as it shows how, how one man's obedience to God brought him wonderful things. That's not how I see it. When I read this passage, the thing that jumps out of every single word in my mind and in my heart is God is sending Abram on mission. This is the the creation of missions. Look at verse 1. God says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. In other words, leave everything you know behind. Say goodbye to your friends and your family. You may never see them again. Likely you won't. Leave behind those things that you valued. Put it in a modern context. Leave behind your favorite grocery store, your favorite restaurant. Tell your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters goodbye because chances are you're never going to see them again. Go visit your friends one last time. This is why I'm uncomfortable. But frankly, I don't want to do this. 
I don't want to leave behind comfort to go to some faraway land. I don't want to leave everything behind. No one does. Why would anyone do this? Have you thought about that? Why do missionaries choose to leave behind everything that they know to go to some place where they don't know the language, the people can't communicate with them, and they may live for the next three or four decades with no conversions? They may be the only Christians in that village or in that country. Why would they do that? Why would Abram even think about obeying what God said here? John Stott, the the late great Anglican priest, wrote this about missions. The Lord who chose and called Abraham is the same Lord who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and who climaxed his creative work by making man and woman unique creatures in his own likeness. In other words, we should never allow ourselves to forget that the Bible begins with the universe, not with the planet Earth, then with the Earth, not with the Palestinian, then with Adam, the father of human race, not with Abraham, the father of the chosen race. Since then, God is the creator of the universe, the Earth, and all mankind. We must never demote him to to the status of a tribal deity or a petty godling like Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, or Milcom, or Molech, the god of the Ammonites, or Baal, the male deity, or Ashtoreth, the female deity of the Canaanites. Nor must we suppose that God chose Abraham and his descendants because he had lost interest in other peoples and given them up. Election is not a synonym for elitism. On the contrary, as we shall soon see, God chose one man and his family in order that through them to bless all the families of the earth. See, Abraham lived in Ur, which is in modern Iraq. His family was full of idolaters, but the truth of the matter is they were still his family. No matter what God calls you to do, there's still this pull to go back to your homeland, what you know, your family, what's comfortable for you. Even in dysfunctional families, we feel that pull to go back. But hear this. When God calls us to himself, he demands everything of us. Whenever I get the chance, I try to remind the church and even myself that I am a Christian before I am an American or even a Westerner. I do this because my background affects how I read scripture. See, most of us can't process leaving everything behind for the work of Christ. At least in the United States, what happens when someone wants to become a pastor? You go to the university for four years, you get your undergrad, and then you pick a seminary. There's hundreds of seminaries that a pastor can pick from, and he chooses one of those hundred. Sometimes it's a couple hours away from home, so it's close enough but far enough. And then he goes and does his three or four years of his master's degree, and and then he goes and gets a job as a pastor somewhere. That's an American ideal. You realize that. That's a blessing that we have that most places in the planet don't. We, we, we can, the biggest questions that we will often face is not will I die from this, but rather how much am I going to have to pay? How can I afford to pay for this tuition? How will all this work get completed when I've got five papers that are due in three days? Those are important questions. But not paying for school or getting a C in a class is not life and death. There are loans available. Getting a bad grade is okay. But there are many places in the world today, many, many places in the world, that becoming a pastor or serving as a missionary is almost a death sentence. 
that not only claiming that Christ is all for you, not only claiming that you've given your life and given everything that you are for Christ, but no, I'm going to proclaim that to the lost people. I'm going to go into that village and I'm going to share the gospel with them. You may die. 4,000 years ago, God called Abram to do something that he has called all of his people to do. To leave everything behind, to follow after him. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's an interaction that Jesus had with a rich young man. The young man asked Jesus what he needed to do to have eternal life. Great question. But Jesus could see to his heart. And Jesus said, you you must keep the commandments. And the, the rich young man said, well, hey, I can do that. And then Jesus said that you need to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Only then will you have treasures in heaven. The man couldn't do it. He couldn't give that up. At a different time, another man came up to Jesus saying that he would follow him everywhere he goes. And Jesus told this man, he said, I'm a wanderer. I don't even have a place to sleep. And you really want to come after me? And then someone said that he needed to bury his father and then he would follow Jesus, meaning that he needed to wait until his father died and then he could, he had no connection, then he could go. And Jesus said this, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The point of all this is that following Christ comes at a cost. There is no such thing as an easy version of Christianity. Either you give everything that you are to Christ and his mission or you give Nothing. There is no partial Christianity. And Abram gave up his home and his family and all that he knew because God's call on his life told him so. In Genesis 20, Abram, his name by then had been changed to Abraham, said that God caused him to wander from his father's house. It was God who called Abram to be a nomad. It was God who called him to give up everything that he had. The same God that called you to him is the same God who called Abram to himself. It's the same God who knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. It's the same God who knew you before the foundation of the earth. But I struggle with this idea of being a wanderer. I'm from Virginia. I spent the first 26 years of my life in Virginia, but if you ask me where home is, I'm not sure. Because since Virginia, I've lived in North Carolina, Arizona, California, Florida, and now Tennessee. I only have a slight understanding of what it means to leave family and friends behind. But I can hop on a flight right now and I can see anybody that I want to within a matter of a few hours. But what I've gone through is nothing compared to Abram. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram was an alien. He was a wanderer. But his purpose was given to him by God. He knew the inheritance was in in the eternal city, not anything built by human hands. So God asks everything of Abram. 
But then he gives them three promises. First, he says that he will make a great nation from Abram. Remember back to Genesis 11. Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. And they are old. They're past retirement age. They're at the point now where they should be enjoying their grandchildren coming over just for a day or two. No more than that, right? But they had no children. They had no grandchildren. They were alone. And if Abram were able to speak to us today, he would say, almost above everything else, what I really, really want that I have not had yet is I want a child. And yet that was the one thing he couldn't have. His, he was too old. His wife was barren. This was his life, and he just had to deal with it. But God had a different story in mind, didn't he? The second promise is that God will bless him. God is committing to give Abram good things in his life for his benefit. But here's what we have to remember, and this is so important. Our definition of what is good and God's definition of what is good often don't match. Romans 8.28 comes to mind, and it says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That makes us feel good. It's, it's used by many to say, well, God's going to use this for good, but did you read the next two verses? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I'll be direct with you this morning. We are often more concerned with the blessings of this world than we are with the future coming city, aren't we? We want it now. We want a better life. We want something nice here and now over the promise of eternity with Christ. And to be fair, maybe it's that we just can't touch it. I can't see it right now. It's not tangible to me right now, and I get that. But Jesus said we cannot serve two masters. We cannot be attached to this world while also clinging to the coming kingdom, can we? So what is this blessing that God is promising to Abram? Ephesians 1 gives us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, keep hearing the blessing, uh, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the promise of his will, to be the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. The blessing that God promised Abram is the same one he promises us. I hope you get this. Adoption, forgiveness, redemption, and inheritance. If you keep your eyes focused on this world, you're missing out on the greatest blessing that can ever be given to you. Third, God promises to make Abram's name great. We want to be remembered. 
I can only speak of this as a man, but almost every man that I've ever talked to, one of the biggest concerns that they have, that I have, is that we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave behind our name in a way. We want our children to remember us and to tell their children and their children how great we were and all the great stories of reminiscing how amazing people we were. We want to leave the world a better place. But think back just a few chapters ago in Genesis to the examples of people who wanted to make their name great. Genesis 6 with the Nephilim and Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Terrible things happened because of what? People wanted to make a name for themselves. So what's the difference? So God's promising Abram that he's going to have a name made for himself. And then we look back at the Nephilim and the, the, the Tower of Babel, bad places. What's the difference? Wasn't God promising to give Abram simply the desires of his heart? See, the difference comes in who was doing it. In Genesis 6 and 11, men try to make a name for themselves through their own work. And God's promise to Abram here in Genesis 12, God does it himself because Abram couldn't do it on his own. Abram would not have fully understood the significance of what was happening the fact that he was given a name that would still be remembered thousands of years later. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all trace their roots back to this one man. I'd say that's a pretty significant name. A great nation would come from Abram. God's blessing would be upon him. But we see in the unfolding story of Scripture that Abram had a great name, but there was one that was coming after whose name would eclipse him infinite amount of times. Paul writes in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. No matter how great, no matter how great Abram's name could become, no matter how big his reach would get, his name still was down here, and Christ's name is the only one that's ever been exalted. Every knee will bow before the name of Christ. But even though Abram was never to be equated with Christ, he was still blessed by God. Why? Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God blesses Abram so that he can be a blessing to others. All over the world, a hideous message is pervasive, primarily to people who don't have much, and it's called the prosperity gospel. It's no gospel at all because it makes God into a genie ready to grant your wishes so long as you just do a couple things for him. Proponents of this prosperity message take passages like this one and say, if you're just obedient to God, God's going to grant you with all sorts of riches and wonderful things. See, the problem is, is that it elevates the gift above the giver. If you were raised well, you were trained and you hated it every Christmas or every birthday, but you had to read those cards. You remember? You had this gift that was, you needed to wrap and you needed to rip it open, and you still had to read this card. Who cares who it's from? Just give me the gift, right? But if you had good parents, they would tell you no. Read the card. Find out who it's from so that after you open the gift, you can put the gift aside and you can go say thank you. Why? Because the giver is always more important than the gift. 
who gives you that gift, that relationship that you have, is so much more valuable to you, whether you realize it or not, than the gift that they actually give to you. And what the prosperity gospel does is it elevates the gift to the highest status available. It, not God, becomes the most important thing in our lives. And it forces people to pray for blessings, material blessings, rather than praying for God's strength and power. Now you see why this message spreads far and wide, I hope. Who doesn't want more? Who, who doesn't want a miracle? Who doesn't want a bigger safety net? We all want more, and that's why the prosperity gospel is so evil. It takes our desires and turns them into idols, making us think that God exists simply to give us more things. What does this give to the person? What does this message give to the person who's sitting across the desk from his doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry, you have a terminal illness? What hope does that give? The truth of the matter is, it makes that person feel like, well, they just didn't have enough faith. If I had enough faith, God would have not allowed me to have this nonsense. What hope does this offer? The prosperity gospel spreads like wildfire because it promises something that it can never give, hope of something better. And it neglects the fact that lament and sorrow are part of life, even for the Christian. And truth be told, this is why I don't enjoy much, not all, but much of what's peddled as Christian music and movies. Because what happens is a difficult time comes, but in the end everything works out. Everybody lives happily ever after. Have you ever wondered why there's not many Christian films about lament? Have you ever wondered why there's not many Christian songs on the radio that are sorrow-filled, like we see in the Psalms? Many of David's Psalms were all about sorrow and lament and sadness. Why haven't we seen a film where a family loses a child, forcing them to worship a God who seems so distant, who seems that he's forgotten about them? See, Abram's blessing was not given to him for his own benefit. That's what is taught on television all over. And that's not what Abram's blessing is for. It was never intended for him to, to hoard it and to keep it all for himself. Throughout the Bible and through human history, we know that there are many enemies of God who have material blessings. They had money, power, luxury, life of ease. We also know many Christians who were faithful to God yet had very little or maybe had died for the cause of Christ. The prosperity gospel, the message that God wants you to be rich, leads its inheritance, adherents, excuse me, to seek out the blessing for themselves. And here, God says to Abram, I'm giving you this blessing, not so that you can keep it, but rather so that you can be a blessing to others. The way that God works in and through us, the church, is exactly the same way. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's where you and I are like Abram. The gifts that we have, the gifts that we've been given are not our own. God has given us everything so that we can give it away for the blessing of others. This goes so far against our me-first culture, doesn't it? A culture that says what I want matters most. I need to look out for myself before I can help others. What I want is most important. The Christian faith, with its roots dating all the way back to Abram, 4,000 years ago, says the exact opposite. It says, I am not the most important. You are, and now it's my chance to show you that by giving away what I value. So God's design all along would be that his people would leave their comfort and that they would use their blessings and the blessings for the benefit of others. Now the question that I, I am staring in the face with every day this week is this. What would our churches look like if every single believer thought this way? And I'm just as guilty. That if we said, you know what, this is not for me. This is for others. This is for the building up of the body. This is for the evangelism of the lost. This is for caring for people who are in need. What if we believe that and then acted on that? Do you think that maybe churches and the Christian faith would be looked differently, looked at differently by the world? Do you think that the people outside of these walls would look at us in a different light? I think they would. And in verse 3, we see all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. We're 12 chapters into Genesis already, and we've seen how many times God's plans have come to pass. This verse, verse 3, is a prophetic statement. In Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the question is how? Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Isn't it amazing that when God made this promise to Abram, he knew the end of the story? This wasn't a maybe situation. God wasn't up in heaven thinking, oh man, I hope Abram makes a good decision. I hope that he, he doesn't sin. I hope that he doesn't go off the, the wrong way because then my plans are foiled. No. God knew that Abram, as obedient and faithful as he was, was still a sinful man. And that he could never carry the load that was required by God. Now if you're wondering how this works, go to Matthew 1 and you, you see the line of Christ that goes from Abram to Jesus. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And it's through Christ that all the earth will be blessed. Do you see the connection here between the Old Testament, Genesis 12, and Christ? Do you see how Christ is the fulfillment of what Abraham was promised? Those who put their faith in Christ from every corner of the earth, every tribe, every nation, and tongue will be saved as Christ is glorified. Do you see the connection now? Do you see how it interweaves together? When we talk about missions, we start right here. God is sending out Abram to spread the gospel in preparation for the Messiah that would one day come. It's through Abram's line, culminating with Jesus, that humanity can find salvation and forgiveness and life. 
This is that blessing that God promised to Abraham. It's not about his wealth. It's not about his land. It's about a kingdom. It's about a kingdom that finds its king in Christ. That is the promise that God had given to Abraham. But as we know, faith without obedience is not really faith at all. And in verses 4 through 9, we see Abram's faith and obedience. We don't like having our faith tested. We don't like having our religious thoughts tested. And while you should never test your religiosity against me, you test it against the word of God. James says that faith without works is dead, not meaning that you must work to earn your salvation, but rather that if you've been forgiven, your outward life will change. You will change. You'll serve people. You'll give things away. You'll give your life to others. If you're truly forgiven, if you're truly a believer, a follower in Christ, your works will come from that. Look at the words found in verses 4 through 9 of Genesis 12. And shows his obedience, Abram's obedience. Abram went, he departed, they set out, Abraham passed through, he moved, Abram journeyed on. We don't know much more about Abram's life at this point, but we know a few things. First, he loved God. Second, he tried to obey. And third, because we know he's a human, we know that he is a descendant of Adam. That no matter how much he loved God, no matter how much he attempted to, to obey, he would have failed. And God's law, as we see in Scripture, God's law requires perfect obedience, and Abram couldn't do that. And you say, well, wait, the law hasn't been given yet. Well, even before the law was given, it was written on the hearts of every person. And this is what we have in common with Abram. In many ways, those we're not, we're not like Abram, and it's not fair to us or to Abram to compare ourselves to him. We won't father many nations. We, we won't be a forefather of the Messiah. 4,000 years from now, no one will ever know any of us existed. But Abram was just a man, a person who needed Jesus just as much as we do. His life of faith and obedience grew gradually, which was great. But we also share the same thing he shared, is guilt that we are separated from God because our sin has blocked us from really appreciating and seeing God for who he really is. But you and I have something that Abram only hoped for. Now here's the joy here. We have Christ. We know that Abram rejoiced when he saw Christ, but all that he had in Genesis 12 was this puzzle or this picture, this thing that was fuzzy or unfinished. He knew that a Savior was necessary, but he didn't know who that Savior would. He, he was putting his hope and his trust in the future Messiah. But we know. We didn't have this, but we do. We have the fulfillment of all that we see in Genesis 12, and we find it in Christ. We have it. Earlier I mentioned Hebrews chapter 11. If your finger's there, if you're holding that page, look back at verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11. After the list of names, these all died in faith, not having received all the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abram could only imagine what eternity would look like. We have it spelled out for us in Scripture. We have all that we need to follow Christ in faith and obedience. But the question that I want to leave you with this morning is this. Christian, are you willing to leave everything behind for Christ? Is Christ enough for you to give up everything you have for the sake of the gospel? I'm not telling you to be like Abram. That's not fair. But I am pleading with you to cling to Christ. Cling to Jesus just like Abram did. Come to Christ knowing that you are not good enough, just like Abram wasn't good enough. But Jesus is more than good enough. He is perfect. He is everything for us. Cling to him. Christian, some of this, some of you here may be stirred to go and serve the Lord on a mission field. Maybe it's ministry work. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. I pray that some will hear this and want to give up everything that they have for the cause of Christ to spread the gospel to every part of this earth. But that's not my first prayer for us. My first prayer, regardless of whether we go into missions or ministry, the truth of the matter is you are a missionary wherever you're at. You don't have to go to some foreign country to go share the gospel with people. You have a job, you have neighbors, you have friends, you have schoolmates. You have people that you can be a missionary to right where you are. It's no accident that God has placed you where you are right now. When you think about your job and you wish that you had another job, man, God placed me here for a reason. There are people who today that you know in your family and in your jobs that if they were to die today, they would spend eternity separated from God in hell, suffering his wrath. We are missionaries. We go out into the world and share the gospel, the good news that they can be forgiven of their sins if they put their hope and trust in Christ. We're all called to be missionaries. But my first prayer, beyond all of the foreign missionaries, church planting, pastoring, whatever that may be, my first prayer is that we would all be willing to give up everything because God demands it. I pray that each person here would be willing to give up all the plans that they've made and the treasures that they've collected for the cause of Christ. Take some time. Consider what we see. Consider that this Genesis 12 is no accident. That it connects clearly to Christ. Examine your own heart to see if you've given up everything. It doesn't mean that you need to go leave your house and pour all your money out into the streets and let people have that. That's not what I'm talking about. But the fact is, is that we cannot serve two masters. If we're controlled by our money and our possessions and our status, we cannot faithfully serve Christ. See if Christ resides in your heart or if you're just going through the motions. See if your treasure is found in him or in something else. Would you pray with me?